All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list, and then the first uh, start of each calendar quarter, he accepts new subscribers. Go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, to put your name on uh, the Chen waiting list, as well as to subscribe to my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stock. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular Voice America Business Channel shows. Also, want to encourage you to continue sending along your questions and comments to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Also, want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Novo Resources, Copper Bank Resources Corp., and Kalinex Mines, Inc. We have an extremely busy schedule this week, so let's get right to the introduction of today's show. I've tied today's show, Stocks and Commodities, A Reversal of Fortunes, question mark. Last week, Michael Oliver showed that his structural momentum work was suggesting the likelihood that equities in general are nearing a major top and that commodities were nearing a bottom. Now, during the second half of today's show, I will be talking to John Robino to explore that issue as well as other issues related to today's market activity. This week, I will be spending more time than usual talking to uh, the CEO, a CEO in interview this week with Dr. Quentin Henning. The reason I'm giving Dr. Henning so much time is because he is the CEO of my favorite gold exploration company, namely Novo Resources. That stock is my single largest holding in my own account because I think it holds extraordinary potential for profitable gold production over the next 12 to 18 months. And because Dr. Quentin uh, Henning is uh, on to what is most likely a Whitwaters-Rand gold environment. For those of you who may not be aware, the Whitwaters-Rand deposit in South Africa has produced north of 30% of all the gold ever mined in uh, the history of humankind. Novo Resources is a company with very little promotion and fanfare. The company has not needed to have to use major investment houses to raise capital. Indeed, uh, Newmont Mining has put in a fair amount of capital, uh, and Quinton Henning, because of his good reputation, has been able to raise capital. As need be, the company is well-funded. Newmont owns 28% of the stock. There's many reasons, I think, that you want to pay attention to Novo Resources. In other words, I'm spending more time than usual with this CEO interview because I am very, very excited about a Novo Resources prospects. Uh, we are going to take a commercial break now, but if you want to know more about this exciting story, don't go away because I'll be right back with Dr. Quinton Henning. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Quentin Henning. He's the president and CEO of Novo Resources. It's a company that I am personally very excited about. It is, in fact, my single largest holding in my uh, retirement account. Uh, Welcome, Quentin. It's really good to have you with me again. Well, thank you very much, Jay. It's good to be here. Always uh, good to talk to you about your exciting project. Uh, You know, you explained in the past on this show... Uh, the Whitwaters Rand, it's, it's you know, the most remarkable uh, gold occurrence on the face of the earth so far. And um, something like, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think something like one half of all the gold that's been mined in the history of man has come from that, from the gold fields of the, uh, the Whitwaters Rand fields. Is that right? Something like that? Uh, it's a little less than half, but yeah, it's, it's certainly substantial. Somewhere uh, estimates are around 1.6 billion ounces, I think. 5.1 or thereabouts have been mined. In okay, in all right. Industry. Well, I know I've seen a bar chart of the Whitwaters Rand and and uh, locked the Carlin trend uh, compared to that, and it was like a, you know, a little almost doesn't show up on the chart compared to the Whitwaters Rand. But in any event, the point is that it's a, the most substantial gold occurrence uh, that has been known to man. You explained uh, on this show before that gold was uh, deposited in the Whitwaters Rand in South Africa. Your theory, at least, is that it was deposited by way of a, a precipitation event rather than a more tra- some of the more traditional methods that geologists have theorized about in the past. And as you explained, that this precipitation event had to take place early in the Earth's history uh, as photosynthesis was coming into being, uh, as it was starting to occur, and that uh, you had to have a shallow seabed environment, I believe, was the other, another uh, condition that, would, that had to be there. And you also had to have a substantial amount of time, millions of years, for, for this event to take place. Have I got the, the basics right in terms of your theory of the Whitwaters Rand, Quentin? That's correct. You've, you've got the overall gist of it. Absolutely. Oh, uh, now, the thing is that you did a lot of work with uh, Whitwaters Rand uh, rock and with similar kinds of uh, environments, geological environments in the past. The theories that were most geologists believe 
caused the Witwaters Rand to be deposited certainly just didn't seem to hold water, didn't seem to, to make sense in terms of the amount of gold that was located in that one place. So you set out to look for similar environments, and you came up with uh, this northwestern Australia, the Pilbara Basin area, where you've uh, focused your work over the last few years. Uh, and you've had some considerable success, I would say, so far, Quentin. Uh, do you feel that, do you still feel that you're, uh, that you're on to something that's very possibly another Whitwaters Rand look-alike, if and we're not suggesting that it has uh, anywhere nearly the amount of gold that the Wit has, but that it, uh, at least geologically speaking, that it that it's similar, at least? Uh, correct, yes. If If you look at the data we've accumulated over the past few years, uh, it's pretty compelling. Um, we're we're dealing with a, a very fresh, you know, uh, freshly exposed basin. Say in in geologic terms, it's the same age as the Witwatersrand. Right? It's about two point seven billion years old, or a little older. Uh, but this these rocks have been exhumed. They're they're uh, you know relatively flat lying, uh, and they've sat here and weathered here in, in Western Australia for the last few eons. Uh, so they're in typical Australia, it's uh, deeply weathered, it's bright red, so the rocks we see at surface, you know, they're hard to gauge exactly what what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, you look at a conglomerate, you see little pits of uh, iron oxide after what would have been pyrite. So the, the pyrite's weathered away. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you look at the rock, it almost looks like the text you had seen a, a baked cake or something like that. Mm-hmm. But once we drilled down and we gathered some uh, fresh material, this would have been our core drilling and, and some of our sea drilling a few years ago. We found you know, fresh pyrites. We found uh, what are called buckshot pyrites. These are pyrites that were probably also precipitated and, and tumbled around a bit in that, that kind of shallow water environment that you were speaking to. Uh, we've also got uh, things like carbon, for instance, uh, in in some of the rocks we broke apart last year in what was called a deportment study, where you break down the rock and, and study the mineral content, mm-hmm. uh, we found pieces of carbon, which is is very interesting. These little pieces of carbon strongly resemble uh, the car- the type of carbon that one one would find in the Witwatersrand Basin. It's probably a relic, fragments, if you will, of uh, a life form that, that lived there at one time. Uh, I would add a bit of detail to the kind of description you gave for the model. That you know, as we know here on Earth, things don't are not static. They don't stay the the same over long periods of time. So, uh, for instance, sea level rises and falls, and in that environment in which those um, little buggies did their work, basically there was this precipitation event, and the bacteria uh, were kicking off oxygen and triggering this cold precipitation. And that that uh, environment would ebb and wane as you had sea level rises and falls. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing good evidence of that here too. We see uh, we see episodic conglomerate horizons that um, that you know are absolutely created by rising sea level as it, it, it cut across the delta system, and then we see uh, channel-like conglomerates that come in after them after sea level falls. So sure. we're seeing a lot of the same textures, a lot of the same minerals, a lot of the same you know overall geology that one would find in the Pitlavishan. One of the characteristics, the, one of the most exciting characteristics of the Witzwaters Rand, is, as you've explained to me in the past, is something known as carbon leaders or carbon reefs. You, you just spoke of carbon. You found these, these carbon particles. And, and that these uh, are extremely rich 
layers uh, or reefs of gold and I think you mentioned to me once that not measured in ounces per ton but in fact they're so rich that they're measured in percentage terms you haven't found anything Correct. like that yet uh, your uh, project there at the Pilbara have you no we have not we don't see the carbon leader in in where we've explored thus far now it's possible that that environment that sedimentary environment is elsewhere in the basin you, you must bear in mind we have about 600 and some odd square kilometers at Nelligan and then another 1,200 square kilometers of land up at, at Marble Bar. Mm -hmm. um, that type of environment uh, could well be here. I mean, we're in, definitely in the right neighborhood. But we haven't seen the carbon leader itself. What we have seen are chunks or plastic particles. These are pieces of carbon material that were broken up during sedimentation. They were kind of tumbled around a bit. Mm -hmm. and they're incorporated in the conglomerate. So I would say that's the best evidence we have that that, that type process was alive here. It was a well, you know, it, it was alive and well. Uh, but we don't see the carbon leader, leader per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that might have been one of the reasons uh, perhaps that the market uh, responded the way it did recently. Uh, I guess it was, what, just a, uh, during the PDAC or right after the PDAC when you announced, well, it was during the PDAC, actually, uh, your 963.4 meter hole uh, that was uh, that was drilled down, and I, I suppose you know you saw the stock sort of creeping up to a dollar forty or so, and then uh, when you came out with the news release, it was almost cut in half, I think, basically. And uh, you know there was one one geologist that I know very well who knows your project and uh, uh, thinks highly of it, uh, said, "Yeah, well, that was really a stupid reaction on the part of the market because." Uh, Quinton could have drilled over, you know, a few meters in one direction or another, and he might have hit something phenomenal. You just don't know. You you mentioned it's just an enormous property, uh, uh, an enormous target that you've got to shoot at, and and we'll get to the exciting news. What I think is really what what gives me confidence in the project is is the surface stuff. But what you you weren't so disappointed with that result. I mean, I think the best intersection that you reported is something like one and a half meters grading 0.42 grams per ton, which, of course, at some depth isn't, uh, isn't an economic number. But, uh, but what did you see there that uh, didn't dismay you from, uh, from that uh, drill hole? Well, the thing that was encouraging to me was that here we are three, three and a half kilometers from any previous drilling, any outcrops, anything. You know? uh -huh. We drill and we hit uh, these sheet-like conglomerates that are absolutely clearly the extension of what we're seeing up up at surface. Uh -huh. So we know that we're, we're seeing the same beds. They're continuous over that distance. The uh, I mean, think about that for a minute. You, you don't get alluvial. Like, you know, think a classic alluvial deposits. They're usually channelized and, and very, have a very small footprint. Sure. We're, we're not seeing that here. We're seeing sheet-like things that continue on for kilometers. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing that's highly encouraging. The second thing, uh, this whole, you know, like you said, the grades are not economic. But what does it tell us? Well, it tells us that uh, it tells us a bit about the geometry of this basin. Now we can start to understand where the shoreline might have been, where the where the deeper water. I would say that the hole that we drilled was probably in a, a distal or deeper water environment. Mm -hmm. But it tells us that we need to now get smarter and look back towards, I believe, towards the east. Uh, where we would be snuggled up against the, uh, there's a, a structure, a fault, that was probably active during sedimentation, and that that probably is the lead control on the system here. Mm, uh, okay. You can imagine it kind of like a hinged door. Um, on one side, it's, it's going to 
swing like the hinge but on the other side it's going to cause a sharp you know break or sharp divide it's that sharp divide we need to look at more closely and understand uh, there are if you look at the cross section that I put into this news release uh, early March I can't remember the exact date but uh, there's a cross section that shows uh, several historic drill holes that were drilled closer to that, that marginal fault. These are holes that were drilled uh, going clear back, I think, to the 1980s. Mm-hmm. These holes uh, collectively, I think there's five or six of them, hit somewhere in the neighborhood of, um, well, each hole had intercepts of over 10 grams. Wow. So it tells wow. me, yeah, exactly. So, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you can kind of put the, the puzzle together and say, well, hmm, if we get closer to that fault, there's a strong likelihood that the grades might improve dramatically. It mm-hmm. also says that the gradients here were probably steeper. In other words, the sedimentary environment was probably steeper than was present in, like, the classic with Rodgersen. We need to uh, we need to stay close to that fault and and look for the shoreline or this shallow water environment there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's fine and dandy for people to speculate and and to think that uh, on the very first hole you're going to come up with a phenomenal uh, intersection. That very seldom ever happens. You know, if it was just that that I was looking at, it certainly wouldn't be enough to to cause me to have this as my as my largest holding for sure. But what excites me and gives me confidence, Quentin, is the ongoing. Uh, news that you've come out with regarding the uh, the oxides, the shallow oxides, would be the, I guess, the most recent reef that's been laid down in this environment, right? And and, and you've come out with some really very good news in terms of uh, the metallurgy, in terms of the geometry and the grades. Uh, what can you tell us about your prospects for for building a, a viable deposit here from the oxides? And I believe, in fact, you're required under your agreement there to come up with a feasibility study by August, I believe, of, of 2016. But how's it going? Okay, yeah, exactly. What you've touched on is the main thrust of our exploration at the moment. We drilled an area in 2012 that uh, helped us generate a resource. It was a, a 420,000-ounce resource. The area that we drilled was a few hectares. It wasn't very big. It was, uh, I'd say, no, no bigger than half a square kilometer. Um, we, are, we, we then followed up with some surface work around that area and realized that the conglomerates that were intersecting in that drilling continued uh, up and around the margin of the basin. Hmm. In other words, we found outcrops based on uh, that, that work. We found outcrops that extended those conglomerates over a, a distance of a few kilometers strike. Wow. So we yeah. used them along, sampled them. We found we got very good numbers. So it it's uh, it really woke us up. It said hmm, there is potential for a, a sizable shallow deposit here. Oxidation, like I mentioned earlier in, in this interview, oxidation uh, here in Australia is, is pretty intense. So the rock from surface down to say twenty meters or so is intensely oxidized. There's absolutely no sulfides left. Uh, what that means is, you know, any any gold mineralization you find is going to be free milling. It's not yeah. going to be type of stuff. So that's also intriguing. Uh, we did a deportment study and, and some other work last year, some gravity test work that suggests the gold is coarse, uh, or it's it's efficient, course, I should say, to, to do gravity recovery. Mm-hmm. We saw uh, exceptionally good recoveries out of some bulk samples we collected. Uh, we collected a do- dozen, I believe, do- bulk samples that we released in uh, in December, early December. 
And if you look at that data, you'll see that the, the average grade of those 12 samples is on the order of uh, just under 3.5 grams. The, the recoveries look like they should be, they average somewhere around 80% for, for straight gravity recovery, which is phenomenal. Uh, these are the kind of things that really make you, your, your toes tingle. Um, you can then envision mining and processing costs that are very low. Uh, given the geometry of this deposit, you know, these reefs, they're very flat. Mm-hmm. The topography is somewhat hilly here. So if you can imagine uh, a hill a few meters high. It's, these aren't huge hills. These are, you know, rolly hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, a hill a few meters high. You have a reef that's a meter or two thick in that hill. Um, the material above it, which is largely sand and pebbly sandstones and stuff, is quite soft. You can strip off with a, a, do- a bulldozer, believe it or not. No drilling, no wow. blasting. Yeah. You can literally just go up, scalp the top off of the, the forebearing reef, and then uh, you push that aside. You don't have to haul it. You don't have to spend a lot of money, um, you know, mucking around here. You yeah. You simply lift the top off the reef, push it into the, the adjacent drainage, and then you can selectively mine the the reef with uh, with tractor. So again, no drilling, no blasting. These are this is an exceptionally simple operation. Uh, given the large area that we have of these, you know, we can open up several. You know, in concept, we can open up, open up several little uh, benches or pits that we have going at any given time, and that'll give us enough feed for uh, a really, you know, I call it sexy small mine. It's, mm-hmm. Talking maybe fifteen hundred tons a day, twelve fifteen hundred tons a day, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in terms of processing, oh, and by the way, the the costs uh, for mining in such a scenario could be quite low. They could I be would think order, so. Yeah, be- uh, on the order of five to ten dollars a ton, if you know, if, and it would include inclusive of strip and everything. Like that's per ton of ore. Right? Wow, that's so, yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly cheap, and then I, I can't help but think. Of course, we don't know what the grades are going to be, Quentin. I know you, you, you know your first grade, your four hundred twenty thousand ounce resource, which is over that just that small area, was one and a half grams per ton, which is you know pretty economic for a lot of open pit uh, surface operations. But most of them don't have the simple, easy metallurgy. Most of them have to do blasting and uh, have to have more complicated equipment to to remove the uh, the ore, uh, and yep. most of them don't have the ability to get rid of the the the, the overburden so easily. And so it it seems to me, I you you mentioned a three and a half gram per ton. Uh, that was from the bulk samples, I believe you said. That's correct. If you average the the twelve bulk samples, it comes in I think just under three and a half grams per ton. Okay. On that note, uh, I I would like to uh, talk a little about. Um, the results we're seeing here. We've, yes. We've dr- drilled quite a few holes. We drilled 327 shallow holes to test this oxide target. We sample these holes on one-meter intervals. Uh, so basically, this is an RC bit. It's a bit that chews up the rock into you know fine chips and powder. Mm-hmm. Uh, you collect that powder at, at the drill. You, you split it. We take what's called a half split. It's basically half of the material coming out of the hole goes into a sample bag. Mm-hmm. So 20 kilograms, which is, I don't know, close to 50 pounds, mm-hmm. uh, goes into a sample bag, shipped to the lab. Now, the the reason we have to take these very, very large samples is because the gold is coarse, it's nuggety, and we have to adequately, you know, 
assess how much gold is in the the sample. When these uh, hit the lab in December, uh, the lab was basically overwhelmed. The process component of this, taking 20 kilo samples and some through all the machinery and whatever, uh, was taking forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I worked with the lab and I said, look, we know that, uh, you know, a subset of the samples we submitted actually have gold in them. Let's Mm -hmm. do uh, an initial what's called a leach well analysis on the samples mm-hmm. using a smaller fraction. So basically the lab went in, grabbed one kilogram of out of each one, one of these 20-kilogram bags, uh-huh. and then they, they performed what's called a leach well analysis on that, that one-kilogram sample. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the leach well is a, it's a cyanide dissolution. They actually put the rock into a, a container with a bit of cyanide solution, dissolve the gold out, and that's how they measure the, the gold content. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... The numbers we are reporting are what I refer to as triage or preliminary numbers. Mm-hmm. They tell us which intervals have gold. And then, once we have all of that back, we will go back and do the, the full processing on just those samples. So mm-hmm. it saves us money, and it, it helps us focus on the gold-bearing uh, reefs as opposed to all the rest of the samples, which are of no interest. So uh-huh. Uh, from from this point forward, you're going to start to see, well, we, we do have a, a few triage samples to release uh, probably next week. I think it, we have six holes left to get get into uh, in the next release. And then you'll start seeing numbers that are, are, that are going to be subjected to the full processing. These are, uh, require three kilogram splits. And what will likely happen is you'll see differences in those numbers because as you analyze more material uh, it, it knocks the, the variability you get with nugget effect down so you, you typically see uh, lower grade samples come up in grade and then some of the real high spikes you might see come down in grade. Mm-hmm. but it, overall it, it, it gives you a much better picture usually a Usually, you see a high grade once you do that. Mm-hmm. So you you said only about a, if I understood you the correctly the four hundred twenty thousand ounce resource one and a half grams almost a, over I think you said a one half square kilometer. How many drill holes went into that four hundred twenty thousand ounce resource? Uh, I believe we had um, it was it was something on the order of sixteen thousand meters of, of drilling collectively, and I think the average depth of the holes was around 100 meters, so, you know, it was roughly 200 holes, maybe 180-some-odd, I remember right. Okay, so now the, the 327 holes that you've drilled since, is that is that pretty much in a new area, stepping out from where your original resource was? Yeah, there's a there's a bit of overlap. We've got uh, uh-huh. some oxide in that, where, where we drilled that initial resource. We have some oxide there, and these, I wanted to drill that area again, using the, the more robust sampling procedure we were following. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say you know, 90% of the area that we're drilling now is, is new, and the resource that we come up with on this area is going to be uh, apart from that, that previous one. Mm-hmm. When do you expect to have an updated resource then? Uh, we're shooting for uh, the latter part of the second quarter or the early part of the third quarter. Wow. It, is, it has been a bit slow coming back, but uh, we should have the the numbers in hand and, and have this all modeled by mid-year. So. Yeah. You know, in your March 10th press release where you talked about the leach well technique, you also uh, noted that you're looking at doing some test mining of reefs in several locations. Uh, 
Can you elaborate on that? Are you going to possibly even do some some test mining well before you finish uh, your feasibility study? Well, we, we really see that test mining is a critical component to, to reach the feasibility goal. Sure. Uh, we've got 32 sites selected. These sites are um, they're on the order of a few uh, tens of meters across, so, you know, say 15 meters by 20 meters area, something where when we mine it, we'll, we'll be able to evaluate the cost of mining, but we'll also collect enough material, you know, enough ore, say, that we can we can adequately evaluate the grade and, and recoveries and, you know, all the important attributes of the, the rock. Um, mm-hmm. This, you know, 32 test pits, which are scattered across the area, should give us a very good handle on grade continuity and you know, all the important aspects. You have um, a 70% interest that you're earning in. Um, how much money do you have to spend? How much is it going to cost you, do you think, uh, Quentin, to finish the uh, the feasibility work? Sure, sure. We have uh, a little over nine right now, and the, the remaining work we have to do, fortunately, most of the work we did last year was, you know, was the heavy lifting. So uh, we have around two and a half, three million to spend on field work to get the thing to uh, to feasibility, and we anticipate getting that done by year end. We mm-hmm. are also permitting, so there's a, a component here of permitting that accompanies the feasibility work. And in in effect, we hope to be ready uh, to to construct or to you know, talk about constructing a mine. You know, bear in mind, this is incredibly simple. Uh, it's not a complex uh, right. processing plant or anything. So we're, we're hopeful that we can be ready by the the beginning of next year. Wow, that's uh, incredible! So yeah, touched on the processing plant, but you know, to give you a picture um, of what this might look like when we mine this muck, the uh, uh, you, you'll see some photographs in our news release that show how the boulders in the conglomerate break away from the matrix, and gold is in the matrix, of course. And you know, it just it's it's a wonderful rock to deal with because we don't have to process uh, the boulders; we we have to simply knock the matrix off put the matrix through a pressure and largely uh, the, the gold in there is largely gravity recoverable so yeah. it's incredibly cheap processing incredibly cheap capex to build something like this it's fascinating to me I mean it's a very very unusual uh, project for sure you know it's, it's more like um, it's more like placer mining uh, almost isn't it it is but it's it's placer with with a lot more lateral continuity you know you know taking looking at the footprint of our system it's very sheet-like, very predictable, and, you know, it's, it doesn't have all the quirkiness of a, a typical plasma mine. Right, yeah. More, the continuity is, uh, I think you've been very encouraged by what you've seen uh, with the continuity of this deposit. Again, you mentioned that, you know, that you're seeing those those beds with that deep hole, the three and a half uh, kilometers away. That is correct, yep. It's a, a remarkable system. I think we, we are seeing, you know, a lot of similarities with, your typical vodka type deposit. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, this is what makes this so exciting, Quentin, is, uh, is not, you know, you have sort of what I look at as a blue sky, the potential to find maybe one day, sometime in the future, the carbon reef that uh, that could be, you know, it could be out there, but more importantly, right now, you're you're pulling together what to me looks like one of the most promising mining operations, and I mean the site. You're you're looking to do something on a small scale to start with to get cash flow to build up and grow your company organically, right? That's correct. We we see uh, this being a very robust. It's not going to be a large, but a, a very robust uh, 
operation, very profitable, and we can, out of the cash flow, we can then tackle the sulfide and then tackle the deeper sulfide and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This, this is something you grow organically. You know, I'm just looking forward to these numbers because, uh, you know, I'm just wondering if, if we might be looking at something closer to that bulk sample. But even if it's a, a gram and a half or so, with the simplicity of this thing, it looks really exciting to me. And the low CapEx, low OpEx as well. The drivers, I, I think, then are the, the uh, obviously, you're going to come up with a new resource. Uh, you'll be having a re- sort of a regular flow of news, won't you, Quentin, coming out, continuing this year? We will. The analytic results that we have coming back. We, we not only have the drill results that I talked about a minute ago, but we have lots of uh, trench samples. We actually costumed or you know, cut across the reefs in outcrop, took uh, bulk samples off of these. So we have um, literally, I don't know, six or 700 costume samples that are, will be coming back over time. Uh, we have some more metallurgy. That, that gravity work we did last year it was just a prelude. So we've got some... Um, detailed metallurgy that's going to give us a flow sheet for building a processing plant. It'll also tell us uh, more. The, the samples we submitted to the, the lab are 350 kilograms, so it'll tell us more about you know that grade, that you know what the real grade is, what uh, what kind of recoveries we should expect, and in, in the costs to put this. You know, the the, the environmental data isn't what you call. Uh, it, you know, sexy, but we have no obstacles to this project. Uh huh. The environmental data that's coming back says we should be able to build this without any any hassles. Uh, the kind of the concept we're pursuing this, you know, scalping and whatnot that I, I talked about, we can reclaim it very easily. It's, we seem to have a lot of support from the various authorities here in WA, and uh, I think this this is going to make a fantastic mine. So there will be news around that kind of, of stuff as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is critical. You know, it's not as you know exciting as drill results, but it's critical to making a mine. So. It looks good. I'm just editorializing here. I'm just talking my book. I, fan, uh, folks out there listening to this show realize that it's not that I'm disinterested in this. It is my largest uh, position, uh, and, you know, I could be wrong. Well, let me just ask you, Quentin, uh, before we conclude our discussion today, what could go wrong? You know, you, you, you know better than I, and I've been around this business a long time, but you know there's always problems when you set up a mining operation. What could go wrong here? Well, yeah, the, you know, you got to keep in mind Australia is is a dry place. You got to have sufficient water to process. Yes, now, we've identified some faults uh, in the area that, that appear to have quite a bit of uh, of water fracture controlled water, and it looks like they should provide sufficient water for for our small plant. You know, mm-hmm. I'm talking, uh, you know, ten thousand tons a day. We're talking about maybe twelve hundred tons a day. Yeah. Uh, the other things that you know we really have to get a good handle on. I would say the biggest challenge in this project is really assessing that grade uh, because of the variability and the nuggety nature of this stuff. We have to get a good handle on that grade. So sure. Those, those test pits are critical. I would say, you know, the test pitch pitch should give us you know that kind of ninety percent comfort level, but you know, grade in the nuggety environment is always a headache. Yeah. Those are the biggest. Those are the biggest. Water and grade. Okay. Of course, there's always risks, and uh, we want our our listeners to be aware of that as well. Uh, Anything else, Quentin, or does that pretty well cover the gamut today? I I think uh, I think we've covered it. You know, it's finally cooling down here in the Pilbara, so uh, hopefully uh, we can work a little faster and a little more sanely. Uh, the temperatures dropped from 116 down to maybe 106. So. <laughs> oh, I don't envy you at all. It's a dry heat, though. Uh, no, 
it's no, it's not. Muggy oh my goodness! Yeah, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you know, I'll stick around here in my air conditioned studio. I, okay. I think I think I'll do that and let you uh, out there with the snakes and the heat. I I don't know. It's not it. But thank God there are people like you out there creating wealth, uh, Quentin. I I appreciate it very much. Thank you for being with me, and look forward to uh, another update sometime in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Sure thing, Jay. Thank you. All right, folks, well, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the commercial break with John Rubino, who always has some fascinating things to tell us uh, about uh, the markets, the gold markets, and uh, the equity markets in general. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbols CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to tell you my guest for this final segment of today's show is John Rubino. Those of you who may not be familiar with John can read his bio uh, on this uh, website that is on the Voice America website, my page, the, uh, J- the uh, Turning Hard Times into Good Times page at the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, most importantly, though, I would urge you to go to John's website to learn more about him and uh, to gain access to his very valuable market insights. John uh, sends out uh, his reports to people, so I'm, I'm quite sure you can put your name on the list, and uh, John will be happy to send out his missives, which I find very valuable and very helpful, and that's why I have John with me today. I should tell you that uh, you should go to dollarcollapse.com. Dollarcollapse.com is a place to go to uh, to pick up uh, and to learn more about uh, John Robino. Welcome, John. It's good to have you with me again. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to talk to you. You know, uh, Dr. Robert McHugh, he's a technical analyst who we have on this show occasionally, uh, he believes we're approaching the what he calls the most cataclysmic stock market decline in our nation's history. That sounds... Uh, that sounds like uh, quite a uh, quite an ordeal ahead of us if he's right. I mean, 1929, we don't think we have anything close to that. We would like to think not. 
Uh, he has his own theories about why we are approaching a doomsday scenario, but his approach is really—he's really a technical analyst, and uh, you know he, he certainly does pay attention to fundamentals. But he uses his technical analyses, Elliott Wave, uh, and a host of other things that he uses. Uh, he notes that there's a huge megaphone formation that has been formed. Uh, over the past decade for the Dow Jones and the S&P 500. Uh, and then he notes that within that is a smaller megaphone formation. And he refers to those megaform formations also as the jaws of death, in part because every major stock market crash that we've had since 1929 has been preceded by these megaphone formations. But not only that, they have brought with them, unfortunately, uh, very significant warfare and wars that have uh, gone along with it, hence the name The Jaws of Death. Now, I mention McHugh because it is connected, I think, in some ways, uh, at least in my mind, with your latest article written uh, at the uh, dollarcollapse.com website uh, titled, We're All Hedge Funds Now, Part 2, Tech Startup tech startups and Nigerian bonds. That's the title of the, uh, of the missive that I found very, very interesting, John. Indeed, the global economy and world monetary system is extremely messed up now, thanks, I would argue, to decades of Keynesian monetary policies that has led us to the sort of ridiculous place where people are actually paying banks now for the privilege of giving them their money, which the banks turn around then and use to make more money for themselves. So, John, uh, zero interest rate policies as your article points out, is leading the world to an ever-increasing risky environment. And I, uh, I firmly believe they are leading us into the jaws of death that Dr. Robert McHugh talks about. Whether it's going to be as cataclysmic as he claims, I don't know. But something sure looks like it has to give. Can you explain to our listeners in the first place, why do we have negative interest rates? Uh, and, and why in the world uh, should we pay banks to take our money, which they can then use to make more money with? Well, the, the very concise version of the story is that we've borrowed way too much money. Um, and debt works the same way for a country as it does for a family. That is, if you borrow too much, um, the money that you would otherwise have spent on productive stuff, like factories and roads and bridges and education, have to go to interest payments. And that slows down the economy, um, makes life harder for voters, makes it way harder to get reelected for sitting politicians. And so... Nobody likes this, and everybody takes steps to uh, combat it. And what governments have done um, repeatedly over the last 40 years is they, they meet a slowdown with easier money. That is, they run big government deficits and they cut interest rates. And in that way, hope to induce the private sector to borrow more money and get the economy moving again. And it's always, you know, quote-unquote, worked, but always at a cost, which is more and more debt in each cycle and um, heavier and heavier interest burden and more and more of a challenge to get things going again. So we reached the point now where they've pushed interest rates down to zero. You know, they, they uh, in theory, couldn't go any further, but what the heck, they just kept on going. And now we've got negative interest rates in a lot of different places. There are um, about $2 trillion worth of bonds trading in Europe right now with negative yields. That is, you have to pay them money to own their bonds. And uh, a lot of different countries have bank accounts now that, uh, if, you know, if you want to deposit some money for a savings account or, or buy a CD or whatever, uh, you get either next to nothing or less than nothing. You know, you, mm-hmm. you have to pay them to put the money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Now, within the economics community, um, 
there used to be a widely held belief that zero was as low as interest rates could go because at that point it made no sense for people who have cash to put that cash anywhere. You know, just keep right. it at home where it doesn't cost you anything rather than put it in a bank where it actually costs you money. Yeah. Uh, but it hasn't turned out to be true. Um, people are willing to buy government bonds with negative yields in some cases. They're willing to put money in the bank where uh, the CD or the bank account actually charges you money instead of pays you money. And so now economists are scrambling to figure out what that means theoretically and practically. You know, how low can interest rates go if negative interest rates are possible? But um, one thing, while this is going on, one thing that we're seeing is a, a lot of behavior change out there because there are a lot of institutions and individuals who need positive yields in order to sure. function. Uh, for instance, a retiree who retired on the expectation of 6% interest on bank CDs um, in order to live and not have to eat into principal, now finds himself losing a percentage point or so each year instead of making 6% and having to eat into principal or go back and get a job. In other words, stop being a retiree. And uh, pension funds and insurance companies and money market funds are all kind of in the same boat. They require positive returns in order to meet the obligations they've taken on, and yet the fixed income part of their portfolios don't really give them returns that are commensurate with their promises anymore. Mm-hmm. So maybe they earn 1% or 2% blended on, on their bond portfolio. Well, they need 6 or 8%. Right. And so what we're seeing out there, and I, I assume this is government policy. They're, they're wanting the private sector to do this. We're seeing all of these guys move further and further out on the risk spectrum. In other words, if a government bond doesn't pay you enough, well, let's buy junk bonds then, or equities, or um, other exotic things. And, and a lot of the news lately is about stuff like that. For instance, Norway's sovereign wealth fund is now buying Nigerian government bonds and the bonds of Petroleo Brasileiro, uh, which is the big Brazilian oil company that is deeply into a bribery scandal and is you know, looking like it's getting ready to collapse. Well, they're, they're buying those bonds because they need, they need yield. Mm. And uh, high-grade bonds don't give them any kind of a yield anymore. And uh, Europe's biggest insurance company is selling its German bonds and buying mortgage-backed bonds. J.P. Morgan Chase's uh, uh, mutual funds are putting their, their clients into speculative-grade corporate bonds and, uh, and, and lots of other things like um, um, tech companies that aren't yet public. You know, this is venture capital stuff here. And we've got mutual funds that are in people's 401k plans buying stuff like this now yeah. and, uh, and buying it at valuations that are – you know, tech stock bubble levels, something you would have seen in, in 1999, and people who are saving for retirement and, and trying to do so in a, a low-risk way are now owning these things. So you're seeing the whole economy move way out onto a, a, a part of the risk spectrum that used to be occupied by hedge funds, which mm-hmm. are unregulated investment companies that can take any kind of risks they want to mm-hmm. and only take money from really sophisticated investors. Well, we've got everybody, unsophisticated, dumb money now out there on that part of the risk spectrum, and that can only lead to horrendous problems when we have the next market correction, right? You know, because stocks and bonds, or or stocks and junk bonds, excuse me, um, they they go up and then they go back down. And that's how those markets work. So you can have a 20 or 30% loss on an equity portfolio in just the normal course of life. 
Well, there's lots of people and lots of institutions that can't handle a 20 or 30 percent loss. But now we've got them out there. And, uh, and in a lot of cases, they don't, don't really understand what it is they're doing and what their risks are because this is new territory for them. So that's the kind of world we've created with negative interest rates, and it can't possibly end well. No, I, I can't see how it can. And, of course, the, the hedge funds were and are still, I guess, reserved for wealthy people. So if they lose 20 or 30 percent, it doesn't put them in the poorhouse. It doesn't put them on the street. But now we're talking about the whole spectrum of, of people in one way or another, uh, the whole society almost that is living out way out there on that risk curve. And, John, why do you think the risk – I mean, there was a time when people wouldn't do that. They certainly wouldn't. Uh, you know, they they wouldn't. Uh, you know, you mentioned these. They're t- taking these extremely risky. The reason they have the high re- high yields, and we've seen it, of course, with some of the sovereign risk debt too, like Greece and other places. People go out there uh, and buy those things to get the yield, knowing full well that they're very very risky. Well, it must mean that people think that the government has an ultimate safety net to put under those things. So if the pension funds go down, they can count on. Uh, on the goodwill of, uh, of Uncle Sam or the Federal Reserve to print more money out of nothing and, and bail them out again? Is that, is that what's underlying this, uh, this willingness to take on that kind of risk? Well, yeah, yes. Well, it's, it's two things. One is they, they don't really understand the risks because they, they've seen these things do well over the last few years. And, right. and most investors who typically buy low-risk stuff um, – aren't paying attention to the nature of junk bonds or to you know, private equity tech companies and stuff like that. They, they just don't know what they are. They, they know what they've gone up lately. And so they assume that that must mean that the experts in this market think they're solid investments. And so they're, they're getting into it without really knowing what the risks are. And as you said, there's an implicit government guarantee now in these markets, because we've got governments all around the world intervening in equities and bailing out big banks. You know, the, the big yeah. banks came through the last financial crisis unscathed. Right. Um, and the, the big bankers got record bonuses in 2009. You know, these, Instead these guys of spending totally time in jail. The government and their equities have come back. And, and so yeah. um, the stock market is up and bonds have gone up. And it's all because governments intervening in the market really aggressively are pushing these instruments up. So everybody assumes that that can continue forever. And that's the assumption that's going to be tested pretty soon because um, it's highly likely that this can't continue forever. When you've got stocks already at um, priced per perfection levels, you know, they're, they're at record levels around the world right now. We've got bonds at, at record levels. Interest rates are at record low levels. So these two asset classes are at the tail end of really long, dramatic bull markets. Yes. They're historically... They've had big corrections because nothing goes in a straight line forever because you get these huge imbalances that, uh, that have to be worked out at some point. So what's happening now is the imbalances are bigger than ever because we assume that the governments of the world uh, won't tolerate a correction anymore. So if you're a rational trader, let's say, not an investor but a trader, and you see something like that, well, then you load up. You follow the government's lead and buy everything without regard to price because you assume that these incredibly deep pocket institutions, you know, the central banks of the world that can create as much new currency as they want to are now, are now at your back. You know, the, the Japanese central bank is aggressively buying equities all around the world right now. 
And the U.S. is probably doing it. They're not announcing that they're doing it the way Japan is, but they're probably in the equity markets too. Mm -hmm. um, and if they can print as much money as they want to, and their goal is to keep these stock markets up, then what's the problem? <laughs> you know, just well, what is the problem, John? I mean, that, that is true. I mean, I have to think that to the moon if, if the pension funds... And, you know, the flaw in that is that the very fact that everybody assumes that there's no risk creates huge amounts of risk because they all behave in ways that um, increase the likelihood that something bad is going to happen. Like, like what we just talked about. When you've got regular mutual funds loading up on uh, private equity tech companies and you've got pension funds loading up on, on hedge funds, which are aggressive companies that can uh, that take all kinds of risks. And you've got sovereign wealth funds buying really, really sketchy paper like uh, Nigerian government bonds. Then you're creating the conditions in which something out there is likely to blow up and it's likely to spread when it happens because uh, everybody is leveraged to the hilt. Everybody is priced for perfection. And so nobody can tolerate um, a serious correction anymore. You know, if you've got high-grade government bonds and the, the world has a recession, you're basically okay. You know, the bonds might fluctuate a little bit. Uh, but if you've got Nigerian government bonds or you've got uh, tech companies that are, are priced at 100 times revenue, you know, you, you've got air pockets under your... Uh, uh, under your assets. And if you've borrowed money in order to buy those things, then you can be bankrupted instantly by a garden variety 20% stock market correction, you know, and we're, we're putting more and more people in that category. Yeah. So, John, um, jo John, I have to say, you know, the pension funds then, of course, have to be in the forefront of the Federal Reserve's mind. And every time that stock market, you know, the, the Fed would like to increase rates, would like to normalize rates, as they say. But every time there's even a whiff of that possibility, the stock market throws a temper tantrum and the Fed comes back and says, oh, we didn't really mean it. We're, we'll be very careful. We'll be patient. And the market heads off into new high territories again. So it seems to me that the Federal Reserve is held hostage now by this by this pathological market condition that they've created, essentially, they and the governments have created by this massive amount of debt money printing, right? Well, they absolutely have a tiger by the tail right now because yeah. they, you know, they, they're not idiots. They see the imbalances building up out there. They see all the stuff you and I are talking about. Um, and the, the part of their brain that, uh, that functions as a, a prudent banker, you know, if you're a, a Federal Reserve governor, you know, you've got... Um, one aspect of your personality that is a banker aspect. And, and yeah. you would say, well, it's time to ease back and try to um, stop these incipient bubbles from blowing up and stop these imbalances from building up before they become debilitating. Well, you can't do that anymore because the minute you try, like you said, the markets throw a fit because everything is priced for perfection. Everything depends, depends on a torrent of new money for, coming from the government. And as soon as that spigot is turned off, everything's going to fall apart. Everybody knows it. You know, the guys running derivatives books and the hedge funds out there, um, you know, leveraging themselves to the hilt in order to to buy um, emerging market equities. Everybody knows it. And So, uh, so John, so, so those guys are going to head for the hills. Of the Fed turning off the spigot. And the minute it looks like that's actually going to happen, everything starts to fall apart. So the Fed can't do it. <laughs> they, they have right. to continue with easy money forever now. Okay, John. John, we only have a couple of minutes left here yet. But So it seems to me that 
you know, these smart hedge fund guys, as soon as they get a whiff of that, they head for the hills. I mean, they're out of there. They're, they're selling as hard as they can. And in order to stop that, then the Fed has to come back in and pump huge amounts of money in and use some kinder words to convince the people that they're not really serious about raising rates and, and, and embarking on a, an honest monetary system, uh, policy of any kind, then, huh? Yes. It has to continue. Yeah. So and, the and tiger, they have, you know, Two weeks ago, the Fed was going to raise interest rates in June. And now they say, oh, well, we'll be more patient. You know, we'll, we'll wait longer. You know, maybe it'll be September. And now you've got Fed talking heads coming out and floating December as the start date for Okay, John, John, unfortunately. Well, they, they're never going to be able to do it. <laughs> John, unfortunately, we're out of time here. We've only got a minute left. What do you tell our listeners they should be doing now, given this scenario? I mean, should they just be buying stocks like there's no tomorrow? Well, um, absolutely not. They shouldn't be buying stocks, although that, that – risks missing the last up leg in this this crazy bubble that's going on. But I I think you should be preparing for some kind of trouble just because we've created the conditions in which trouble is becoming more and more likely because of all the stuff that you and I just talked about, all the decisions people are making that inevitably lead to trouble. And uh, so something bad has to happen. Some kind of resolution has to happen. So we should be scaling back our financial exposure. You know, paying off debt, raising cash, buying things like precious metals and, uh, and possibly well-chosen functional assets like real estate or farmland or something like right. that. You know, th- right. things that have value and can't be created on in, in infinite quantities by governments on printing presses. Very and good, then John. hopefully we can weather the storm, you know, because this is going to be a really hard time for a lot of people. And I'm we afraid. want to be as self-sufficient as possible yeah. when, uh, when it really hits the fan. I'm afraid you're right, John. We're out of time, unfortunately. Thanks for joining us again. We'll look to do it again sometime in the near future. Thank you very much. Well, folks, that's all the time we do have this week, but uh, next week Axel Merck will be with us. I think Michael Oliver as well as Gene Epstein. Uh, so be sure to tune in next week. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. 